Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts and our minds as we read together and hear the preaching of your word today. Through Jesus Christ, amen. We'll be reading from Matthew 2, starting in verse 7. Matthew 2, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what the prophet, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord.
good to be with you again on the Lord's Day, the Sunday before Christmas. Can you believe it? Christmas? Right around the corner? You guys awake today? Mostly. It's coming. Christmas. Are you excited? This is going to be a rough crowd this morning. It's going to be a rough crowd. Maybe, uh, maybe I should sit down and preach. Uh, you know, in the early church, uh, like I've been reading uh, Augustine recently, and uh, the bishop, Augustine, uh, would preach seated. And the congregation stood the entire time. So what do you think? Should we go back to that? Um, he sat from the chair. And there was a special chair where he would sit and the congregation would stand. And he was such a popular guy that people would be shoulder to shoulder uh, listening to him preach uh, the, the word of God. But we'll let you sit this morning as long as you stay, um, as you stay uh, with me. You know, as I mentioned last week, we, our congregation has been blessed with saints who have been serving the Lord uh, a long time. And Wednesday night here at the, at the gathering in, I was talking with, uh, with Les and I learned that Les and Kay uh, celebrated 65 years of marriage this last week. 65 years. Praise God. <laughs> she said, and they said it would never last. Yeah, 65 years. So may the Lord give us marriages. May He give us all of us here that are married, all of us here that are yet to be married, that when you enter into that covenant of marriage, may the Lord give us that, that longevity, that, that faithfulness to your vows that you have uh, shown as, uh, as leaders here of until death do we part. So I thank, thank you for that. Okay, I need to start preaching here. We're going to be here a long time uh, today. Christmas is coming I'm excited about it. You're excited about it. Last Sunday, our small group, uh, right at the beginning of our discussion of our small group, we're sitting in a living room with the Christmas tree and with the decorations and the fire going, and we went around and each household described traditions that they have uh, or that they grew up with, Christmas traditions, and many of those you would be familiar with, opening presents on Christmas morning, giving gifts to one another. Some sing happy birthday to Jesus early on Christmas morning. Even a cake or some kind of special uh, treat is made and singing uh, happy birthday uh, to him. Special treats are made. Uh, things are made only that time of the year do they come out of the, of the kitchen. In, in our house, uh, toffee is one of those things. My wife makes this incredible toffee. It's so sweet. We, last year we got a puppy and we named our dog after that toffee that, that she only makes at, at Christmas time and has to be in a safe or it'll disappear right away. We moved to the foothills in 98 and uh, one of the traditions we have right here, uh, mandarins. Is a tr- uh, I mean, we, we, uh, I love mandarins and this has become a, a tradition of our family, just eating mandarins. All, it's something that we associate uh, with Christmas. And then there's uh, TV shows and films. The film uh, It's a Wonderful Life and a variety of TV shows that come our way. Charlie Brown Christmas and, and others this time of the year. They come on our screens 
And I'm going to show you a clip of, of one of them, just about a minute long here. Some of you will be familiar with this. Some of you maybe have never seen it. I think it's coming up here. We're going to have to watch a commercial or anything? No, okay. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and roll this for, for, just, for just a minute or so. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle-belling And everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year It's the happiest season of all With those holiday greetings and gay happy when friends come to call It's the happiest season of all There'll be parties for hosting Marshmallows for toasting And caroling out in the snow There'll be scary ghost stories And tales of the glories Of Christmases long, long ago It's the most wonderful time of the year There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. In many ways, Christmas is uh, the most wonderful time of the year. Even when we look at the scriptures, we see Mary respond in song with this, uh, what has become known as the Magnificat, where she is praising God, thanking him for allowing this, this young, uh, humble girl to, to have the Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit in her miraculously, this virginal conception. We see the, uh, the Magi, we saw this in last week's uh, sermon, and last week's text, these Magi, these men from the East, coming from perhaps Arabia or Babylon or Persia, these foreigners who have come to worship the birth of the Messiah. We have the shepherds in in Luke 2 who see his glory, who worship him, who who spread the news of of the Messiah. And so in many ways, uh, it, it is the most wonderful time of the year. And yet as we turn to... Matthew 2, as we continue today, as we turn to these next few sections, next few paragraphs of Scripture, we see that it is also a brutal time of year, that it is a very difficult time of year. We're going to see how terribly difficult in many ways it was for Joseph and for Mary, this journey that they were on, this unwelcome journey, and the threat of murder. Uh, upon the Messiah, upon the, the, the babies of Bethlehem. So it is a difficult time of year as well, a brutal time of year following that first Christmas. And for many today, Christmas season is a difficult time. It is a hard time. It is a time where many are lonely. It is a time where many are grieving. Those who are missing people who are no longer with them to celebrate this season. And so today's sermon is in a special way for those people, but it's also for all of you, even if you're not 
grieving or feeling like this is a brutal time of year, this is a time for, for you to come alongside those that you know that this is a difficult time of year. It was a difficult time for Mary and Joseph. We're going to see that. It's a difficult time for many of us. So let's get into our, our text today. We're in Matthew chapter 2, and we're beginning at verse 13. So let me just summarize the, set the setting. For those of you that weren't here last week, at the very end of last week's text, verse 12, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So the Magi were duped by Herod, and they were planning on going back to tell him where the child was. Herod wants to kill the child, and so they are warned in a dream not to go back to him, and they go to another route. And so we pick it up now in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Right here at verse 13, we see that this doesn't sound like the most wonderful time of the year. The Messiah has been born. And there has been this unwanted and unwelcomed journey. The Magi have left. And so the angel appears to Joseph in a dream again and tells him to get up and take his child and his, to take the child and his mother. Notice the inversion of what we would expect here. We would expect the, the writer to say, take your wife and, and child or take your family. But the child is first because he is the Messiah. He is a child like no other. And so this this angel appears and says, get up and take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. This is an unwelcome journey. This is an unwelcome part of the Christmas story in these months following the birth of the Messiah. And the story actually starts earlier. If we look at this map, Mary and Joseph are, are from Nazareth, way up there toward the right on the top. And according to Luke's gospel, they travel to Bethlehem because it's, it's tax day, basically. The IRS, the equivalent of the IRS in the Roman Empire, has said you've got to come and report and enroll uh, to the town that you are from. And so they travel during this pregnancy from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so Jesus, the prophecy is fulfilled, and Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and now some point after the birth, this angel appears and says, Herod, this guy that we talked about last week, this wicked, paranoid ruler is out to kill Jesus and you need to go to Egypt from Bethlehem with a newborn. Does that sound good, moms? (laughs) This is an unwelcome journey to Egypt, at least 90 miles to get away. From this, Mary and Joseph are desperate. They're desperate for God's sustaining grace to see them through this incredible, wonderful time of the year. The Messiah is in her, but there is also this this dark side. There is also this this evil that is looming. This is also the most brutal time of the year in many ways. 
And so they are desperate for God's grace, for his sustaining grace to help them through this time. And so it is, in a different way, a very difficult time for some of us here this morning. Not because of a physical uh, physical, uh, journey that we have to undertake, obviously, but because of God's providence, he has allowed difficult uh, things into our lives, including the loss of loved ones. So I want to say to those of you that this is a, a difficult season, this is a difficult time of the year, a brutal time of the year even, that the Lord Jesus is with you, that your church family is with you, and God's sustaining grace is available to you. I love Second uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, where Paul deals with this issue of, of people dying and the, and the church uh, is kind of like panic, like well, what, what's going to happen here to our brothers and sisters in Christ who have died? And Paul writes there, he says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. I love the language the New Testament uses. We don't tend to use this language for death. Those who fall asleep. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who have died, those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. I want to encourage those of you here this Christmas season who are missing those who have fallen asleep. I want to encourage you with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are awaiting a reunion that's going to be glorious and that there will not be losses uh, anymore again. Are you looking forward to that day, church? So Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, but it is also a brutal time of the year. Brutal for Mary and Joseph and brutal in many ways for some of us. Mary and Joseph are desperate for God's sustaining grace for this unwelcome journey. And they're also desperate for his sustaining grace in light of the presence of of this enemy, the presence of Herod, the presence of this, this, uh, this maniac, paranoid ruler who has been appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. And so back to verse 13. Mary and Joseph, they're told to stay there in Egypt until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. This is a difficult time. There is opposition to the gospel, always. There is opposition to Jesus Christ, and it begins right at his birth. There is opposition to Christ. And to the gospel. 
And to the degree that you and I are living our lives boldly for the gospel, there will be opposition to you and to me. 2 Timothy 3.12 In fact, everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Our Lord was persecuted. You and I will be persecuted. This is one of the verses I have memorized for myself that I need to preach to myself because there are times when I get very comfortable in my life and I am not living with boldness. I'm not taking the light of the gospel into dark places. I'm, I'm keeping it covered, if you will, with a bowl and only letting the light shine in safe places around other believers. I'm reminded that persecution and opposition is something that we're going to face. It's something that the baby Jesus faced. Herod has a certain kind of faith. He has a faith kind of like the demons have. He knows the power of the Messiah that is coming. This old man whose reign is nearly over is afraid of a baby. (laughs) He's afraid. His authority is threatened by this baby. Because he knows the scriptures have foretold of this. He knows this through the Jews that he's ruling over. He wants to kill him. He wants to take him out. If you and I are living boldly with the gospel, we are also going to have opposition. We're going to have enemies. We need God's sustaining grace through that. We're going to be made fun of. We're going to be thought of as kind of the backwoods, anti-intellectual, redneck, guns and God kind of people. We're going to hear that kind of thing if we are taking the gospel into dark places. Mary and Joseph were desperate for God's sustaining grace, and his grace was there for them. His grace is there for us, even in the presence of our enemies. I love Psalm 23, this this image of our God, our, our great God, that he is sufficient, that he is so strong, and so powerful that he can set a table and that you and I can enjoy a feast, a meal, even in the presence of our enemies. That is the God that we serve. And he will see us through. And he sees Mary and Joseph through this. Do you believe that? So that's verse 13. Let's move on and look at verses 14 and 15. So he got up, Joseph gets up, took the child and his mother. Again, we see that that flop of orientation there. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. This is a desperate situation. They leave in the night. We see again Joseph's faithfulness and obedience here to this messenger, to the angel. Middle of the night. Leave for Egypt. Verse 15, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I will call my son. Quoting Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
And out of Egypt I called my son, speaking about God's people as a son, as a child, and bringing them out of of the bondage of, of Egypt. Matthew is explaining here in the fulfillment of this prophecy how Jesus' personal history repeats certain aspects of Israel's national history. Tons and tons of fulfillment of Scripture in these first couple chapters of Matthew's gospel. Let's move on, verses uh, 16 and following. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, so, so some time has passed, he was expecting them, he's a skillful deceiver, and he's expecting them to come back and report where the Messiah was born, but that doesn't happen. And so Herod comes to the realization they're not coming back. And he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. That's why he asked in last week's passage, tell me when you saw this star. Tell me. He was plotting back then to take him out. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In this section of scripture, it sure doesn't sound like the greatest time of the year. Sounds brutal. Sounds terrible. It had been prophesied by Jeremiah. Jeremiah used personification to describe the mothers of Israel, Rachel representing the mothers of Israel, mourning for their children who had been removed from the land and carried off into exile, leaving Israel no longer a nation and considered dead. Like the exile, the attempt on Jesus' life was intended to wipe out the chosen one of God. There has been opposition to God and to his people throughout all of history. And here we see it in this brutal form of wiping out the Messiah. And so Mary and Joseph are desperate for God's sustaining grace due to this wicked man, Herod. Due to what he's doing. And I think for both them and for the people in Bethlehem, And for the reader of Matthew's gospel, one of the things that comes out in this passage is the problem of evil. The problem of evil. A critic that is reading this passage would say, how is it that the Lord... The God of the universe protects the Messiah, the Lord, but allows these babies to die in Bethlehem. What kind of God is that? The critic would say. How does he allow, how does God allow this this, this wicked man to do this kind of thing? The small village, Bethlehem, may have had 10 to 30 boys of that age. Two and under, 
some time has elapsed. Jesus probably isn't quite two years old yet, but this guy is a maniac. He is paranoid. And so he, he sends this decree to wipe him out. He sends the army to wipe these out. Just imagine what it was like in Bethlehem. Imagine what it was like for Mary and Joseph when they learned about what had happened. So what do we do with this? This is one of the the biggest problems for us, this problem of evil. The argument is something like this. Many of you are familiar with it. The argument goes that if, from the critic's perspective, if God is all-loving, then he would prevent terrible suffering and evil, the slaughter of babies in Bethlehem. If he was all-loving, he would do that. And if he's all-powerful, then he could do that. And so if we have a God who's all-loving, we have a God who's omnibenevolent, that's what you Christians say, and you have a God who's all-powerful, that's what you Christians say, this God that is all-powerful who is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, why does he allow this? Why does he allow this slaughter in Bethlehem? Why does he allow the kind of pain that some of you have been experiencing? Depression and discouragement and grief and loss. A few nights ago, I don't recommend watching this probably, but it's still in my mind, in my heart. We watched this documentary on uh, ISIS and uh, territory. Some of you maybe, I see you nodding your head. Some of you may have seen it. What they're doing to the Azidi people in the territory where they cover as they slaughter the men and the boys and what they're doing to the women and the girls. What do we do with this? This is, this is the most difficult thing, I think, in Christianity, in the scriptures. So philosophers and theologians have wrestled with this for centuries, right? And I'm not going to rehearse all of that. We don't have the time. But more importantly, their rehearsals, the philosophers and theologians and, and logicians who've tried to answer this, their, their syllogisms and their ideas, even the most brilliant men throughout church history, they, they just don't really stand up to scrutiny. Logically, biblically, the, the, the argument of, of free will defense, uh, this has to happen because we have free will, it, it doesn't really stand up when we think about God ultimately being all-powerful. The idea that evil only happens for a greater good, the doctrine of meticulous providence, another way that, that theologians and philosophers have tried to deal with this, God only allows certain evils for a greater good. It doesn't stand up. Can you imagine talking with one of the families in Bethlehem and saying a free will defense or a greater good defense, and this is why your babies died? Or if you and I had the opportunity to minister to the Zidi people as they come to know Jesus and Savior and Lord, and they're saying, why did this have to happen to my little girls? A free will defense, a greater good. This evil was allowed for a greater good. That, that, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. 
So we have to be very honest when it comes to the problem of evil when we look at a text like this. One uh, theologian writes this. He says, why God has permitted evil, we have not been told. The Bible nowhere directly addresses the question, even though both David and Habakkuk directly ask the question. So this question has been asked. This is nothing new. He goes on. This is Robert Duncan Culver. He writes, he says, the Bible never mounts an effort at theodicy. Theodicy is the fancy word that we use to try to solve this problem of evil. The Bible never mounts an effort at theodicy, an, an, an effort to save the character of God, an effort to save the character of God from harmful inferences derived from the presence of evil. Evil is allowed in the world for reasons God has never seen fit fully to disclose, in which no human wisdom, Christian or otherwise, has been able to fully discover or explain. So, what we say to people that are suffering at Christmas time, our own people, what we would say if we had an opportunity to minister to the Yazidis who are coming under this persecution from ISIS, if they came to believe in Jesus, what we would say to them is, I don't know, but I know that God is good, and I know that he has been seeing his people through suffering, through unspeakable horrors for centuries. And I know that one day, Advent is about his first coming and it is about his second coming. I know that one day out here, and I'm praying it soon, that he is going to be back and this is going to be over. We're not going to have Herod's. We're not going to have ISIS. We're not going to have lives being taken early from our perspective. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. This is the hope of the gospel. And we have to understand that there are mysteries beyond us. God's sovereignty and how, he, the, how is it that he teaches that the road is narrow? That, that, that there are mysteries that, that he has chosen not to reveal to us. We desperately need God's grace to deal with this problem of evil and suffering, especially when it is acute and it is right in front of us. And some of you are feeling it. Our God is able to deliver us through whatever comes our way. Let's come back to our text, verse 19. We'll finish up here, verses 19 through 23. There's good news here. Herod dies. Verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream again to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child, And his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Another journey. Verse 21, so he got up. He took the child and his mother, this 
swapped orientation again. We'd expect mother and child or family. He took the child, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the second person of the Godhead becoming a human and went to the land of Israel. Verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, if you notice here in verse 23, the way the wording is different than the other fulfillments. If you look up at verse 17, it says, then what was said through the prophet, singular, Jeremiah was fulfilled. We jump back down to verse 23, and we have prophets, plural, and we have this thing being fulfilled, that he will be called a Nazarene. This is significant because we have no Old Testament text that says he will be called a Nazarene. So what, are we, what, what is this saying here? We don't have a verse that says this like the others. And so what is going on here is Matthew is saying that it is known that there is shame associated with Nazareth. And nothing good comes out of this place. And so this fulfillment is a broad one. And it has to do with the stigma of Nazareth. And Mary and Joseph are desperate for God's sustaining grace due to the stigma that comes with Nazareth and nothing good could come from there, let alone the Savior of the world that we've been waiting for and praying for and expecting. Matthew may have been thinking, I would say he was thinking not so much of Nazareth as the place where the Christ would live as of the fact that the Christ would endure the stigma of being despised as the Nazarenes were. We read of this in John's gospel, this stigma in John chapter 1. Philip, this interchange between Philip and Nathaniel. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip followed Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked, Nathaniel asked, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And Philip responds, come and see. Come and see. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's a phrase right there. Come and see. <laughs> can anything good come from Nazareth? Here we are 2,000 years later celebrating the candles. One of them's not lit. I'm really spontaneous. Can I light this thing? It went out. I can't point out the candle and it's not lit. Now it's lit. All of you noticed that, right? <laughs> what was I saying? The Messiah has come from Nazareth. The Savior. This place that, that, that has this stigma, that has this, this terrible reputation. He's come from there. Our God is powerful. His grace sustains us through all things. Through all things. This message is especially for those who are struggling, who are recognizing not only this is the most wonderful time of the year, but this can also be a brutal time of the year. 
So I want to close today speaking to you from the word from chapter 13 of Hebrews. Just listen to this. Those of you that are struggling this Christmas season, the word says, be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. No matter what Herods come into your life, no matter what grief comes into your life, no matter what ISIS has done to the Azidi people, the gospel is sufficient to redeem them from them and give them hope. And that hope is for us. That hope is for you this Christmas season. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask lots of questions. Sometimes they're answered and sometimes they're not. Lord, I pray for those who are dealing with grief and suffering this Christmas season. Lord, I pray that they would rely on that same grace that Mary and Joseph relied on. That grace of the Lord Jesus that is sufficient to put away any and every fear. Lord, I've seen it in your people. I've seen it in brothers and sisters. We're so thankful that you are at work today, just as you were 2,000 years ago, in protecting the Messiah from a wicked man. We thank you for our deliverer, and we thank you in Jesus' name.